I thought um, in the at least two weeks that I have uh, in the evening last week and this week, I spoke on hope last week, and uh, I wanted to, to focus on the theme this week that is traditional. I know someone was asking Phil at the door, what do the four candles mean? <laughs> There's a sketch. I was impressed. Um, there seems to be some debate in the internet world of what the four candles mean. <laughs> it's very typical church, isn't it? Um, can't agree on much. But anyway, uh, it is fourth Sunday of Advent. And I particularly um, folk want to focus in this theme of coming and of those four candles. I can't say it without seeing that. <laughs> four candles. Oh, we're looking forward to it. Um, that actually they, these four Sundays in preparation for Christmas are actually really, really important. Really, really important hope that in the midst of of our journey of, of life from birth through to grave, when there are good celebratory times, happy times, moments of gathering, feast, and festival. There are also times of the valley of the shadow of death, of, of hardship, of suffering, of travail. The dark night of the soul, as many of the Christian spiritualists declare. Hope burns brightly. The lit candles remind us. Even the darkest darkness light dispelled. And this evening I want to, to focus on another theme that is of Advent. If you come from a church tradition that celebrates Advent, you will probably know that I'm teaching you to suck eggs. Well, maybe not. I'll give you a little quiz in a minute about what the second Sunday of Advent might be about. But one of the things that's characterized this year, and particularly the last, I guess, few months, but in the last few weeks particularly, is a phrase that really disturbs me. It really does send a shiver down my spine. Have you heard the phrase, phrase post-truth politics? It's, to, it's characterizing our time and age, post-truth, in meaning, in meaning that truth doesn't matter anymore. And it kind of um, has been around for a few years, but it seems to have taken um, root this year particularly. Um, do you remember the Brexit bus? 350 million pounds a week that we won't be paying to dear Brussels. All those sprouts. Um, that was a joke. Crack a joke. Um, and people said it's not true. But it was put on the, the bus. And, and uh, even the very morning afterwards, dear Nigel Farage said, oh, of course it's not true. But it was held up as truth. The president-elect of America, Donald Trump, seems to be one of these post-truth politicians. He seems to say many things, and then they're not actually founded in any sort of reality, truth. And it's a scary place, because how do we know what's up and what's down? How do we know what's good and what's bad? Maybe this is just the outworking of what um, philosophers and sociologists have coined as postmodernism. There is no longer truth. It's whatever truth you want. It's whatever truth works for you. It can't say that my truth is necessarily right for your truth. Post-truth politics, post-truth society is a place where it says, well, your truth isn't my truth. Who says what's a lie? Don't judge me. And as such, the second candle of Advent reminds us that actually our faith that this world that what we are celebrating at Christmas is true, 
that it isn't spin, that it isn't hyperbole, that it isn't kind of a concoction of, of a media consultant. It is true. It happened. But sometimes you have to look quite hard. Who's seen? No, don't, don't give the game away. So this is, I think this is an appropriate picture. I found it on the internet. I'm, it's Where's Wally? I'm kind of looking at all these people on the beach thinking uh, there's probably a cartoonist like done something a bit naughty in it, but I can't, I'm not going to look for that. Anyway, so um, can anyone, this was the easy one. I find these exceptionally frustrating. I don't know if anyone else does. Can, can anyone see Wally? He's over there. Oh, I'm doing it on the wrong screen, aren't I? Uh, where's, where's Wally? Go on, Tim. He is in the middle. He's buried. There he is. With his hat. Is there? Where's the other one, Phil? Where is the green one, isn't there? Where's the green? Ah, look. The wasp. This one? It's one under the water. <laughs> Where's the opticians you go to? <laughs> yeah, post-truth. They're all Wally. No. I like this guy's suntan here. Look, it's great, isn't it? Um, the more I look at that picture, the more comments I could make, but I won't. <laughs> Really? What to? Okay. There we go. Um, carols by candlelight and Advent candles reminders, reminders very much that that which we're celebrating, that which we've decorated, that when we cut through, sometimes we have to look and focus and find Jesus. And in the second Sunday of Advent, the theme very much is, is reminding us that the Jesus who came was spoken about long before. He was foretold, he was announced, he was declared. That the three quarters of, of that which we carry around the Old Testament is good and true and, and has lots of lots of faith stories to build up, lots of the encounter and the personality of God, lots of challenges. But one of the things that is a bit like sometimes looking at, at where's Wally is, is the theme in the Old Testament of the announcement that the Savior is coming, the anointed one, the promised Messiah. And we sing about it in carol services and, and we, we declare it in tradition, but God announced long before and had it spoken through his prophets, his oracles, his mouthpiece, men that are recorded and probably women that aren't, who's declared, I will do a new thing. And it's really important to remember this. And, uh, and for me, when I journeyed, it, when I started thinking about Christianity, this was, as a scientist, this kind of made a big impact on me. Because verifiably, the things that were written in the Old Testament were completed and codified and canonized, those are big words. They were set out and established hundreds of years before Jesus came. 
And for me, that mattered because if, if, you know, unless we just tip, chuck out the whole lot and say there is no truth and there's no bearing, but then we, we live in a very frightful place of, you know, of, uh, well, I dare not extrapolate. In it. We, I don't think many people actually would think there is post-truth. That we still know to a part that there is truth. And this really mattered to me. And I think it's one of those founding things for the, for the, thing, the theme of Advent that we should be reminded of, that this is one of the linchpins, the, the, the anchor points, the, uh, the pile drivings that go deep to say that which we celebrate at Christmas is very much rooted and established and announced clearly. This isn't made up. This isn't one amongst a whole panoply of, of myths and, and winter festival stories. The God made sure that this was declared. You see, as the time of Jesus came, there was this growing, there was this growing hunger, this growing awareness, this growing desire because of what God had said, that, that they knew that God was going to do a new thing. He'd said it loudly and clearly enough through the prophets, but they were still waiting and still anxious. And when John the Baptist came on the scene, there was that kind of like, oh my goodness, is this it? There were, there were two prayers that were... Um, um, being used that, that had been recorded for us uh, of, of messianic expectation of that longing, that looking forward to, that awaiting, that trembling with excitement of God will do this. He's promised we've known his faithfulness in the past. He's dependable for now and in the future. Two synagogue prayers that have been recorded that aren't in the scriptures but uh, recorded in, in archaeology would say this, Be gracious, O Lord our God, according to your great mercies, to Israel, thy people, and Jerusalem, your city, and Zion, residence of your glory, to your temple and dwelling place, and to the kingdom of your house of David, your righteous Messiah. They were praying and saying, Lord, you promised, you promised, you promised. Another one said, Make the branch of David soon spring forth, and let his horn be exalted by thy salvation. That as we open the New Testament and, and as we uh, will be hearing of those wonderful characters of Elizabeth and, and Simeon and Anna and, and John, Mary and Joseph and not the innkeeper because he's not there, nor the donkey, but the wise men. They come into the context of a huge announcement the banner had been put up and say, behold, I will do a new thing, a Messiah will come. You see, it's really clear in the New Testament, in, in John 1, 20, particularly, but also there in, in Matthew, when um, John comes, they say, are you the Christ? Are you the one? They were ready, you see. They were ready. The, the, the pump had been primed. The ground had been plowed. The, the, the seeds had been sown. Are you the one, John? No. The one who's coming after me. Oh, yeah. You see, the messianic expectation, the hope that they were looking forward to, that, that second candle that we have, we've lit, what we lit this morning, we're remembering, is about the announcement that God had foretold. A savior had come. Way back in Genesis chapter 49, uh, verses 9 to 10, you are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from, my, from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to round, rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs 
and the obedience of, his na- of the nations is his. Way back in the ancient histories, the first announcements of one who would come for all nations, one who will come who will be the ruler from Judah, from the tribe of Judah. Five, six, seven hundred years later, in the time of King David and Samuel, when your days are over and your rest, rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I don't know if you saw the footage of of some dictators gathering in Havana. I was talking with someone yesterday who's from Zimbabwe and he's talking about Mugabe and saying he just goes on and on and on. He's 92, when will he die? I mean, that's not something we say very often. For those under the cosh of Mugabe, it does seem that Mugabe's reign is long-lasting. But the prophet goes far beyond I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. You see, the promise of the coming king is narrowed from the tribe of Judah to the person of David and one of his descendants, someone greater than Solomon. Can you see on the second Sunday of Advent, as you scan the scriptures and you think of life, to focus in and see the heralded one. See, the Old Testament gives us hundreds of clues. Hundreds of clues, actually. Some major ones and some uh, less um, obvious, but there are dozens and dozens of them concerning who the Messiah is. So, I'm going to read out some clues, and these are all from the Old Testament. I want you to hold back your answer till the end. These are some of the clues from the Old Testament concerning who the Messiah would be. They say, I am Jewish. My ancestors go back to King David. I was born in Bethlehem. My mother was a virgin when she had me. I was betrayed by a friend. I had parts of my beard pulled out. I was mocked. I had my clothes taken from me. I was beaten. My hands and my feet were pierced. I was hung on a tree. I was thirsty. I was surrounded by enemies. Not a bone of mine was broken. And after I died, I rose from the dead. Who am I? Oh, faithful people. <laughs> and that's not New Testament. That's old. That's not kind of looking backwards as sort of protagonists and propagandists from the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament Christians and Christians through old ages be saying, well, you've concocted the New Testament. You've changed it. You've altered it. You've made it fit the circumstances. No, no, this is way back. This is the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it, all there. You see, when we start to gather the information, it becomes really clear. Just as an illustration, I don't know who Miss S. Pollard is, but this is from the Royal Mail website of how to address a letter correctly. She must get a lot of mail in Bournemouth. But... Interestingly, with seven pieces of information, a letter can be delivered to one person out of all seven billion people in the world. That's pretty astonishing, isn't it? Seven billion people with unique names. 
scattered across an entire globe. Seven bits of information will be delivered to the right person. All you need to know is the country. And postcodes help. And then the city in that country and the street in that city and the house number on that street and the last name of the person who lives in that house and then the first name. Seven bits of information to identify one out of seven billion that live on planet Earth. And you see, the Father has given us hundreds of bits of information, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, so that out of all the people who've ever lived, we can know for certain that Jesus is the one. Jesus is God's Messiah, the Savior of the world. It points to him. We'll read it soon, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, writing about the virgin birth. You know, there are 48 major predictions of Jesus coming. Isaiah reveals the manner of Jesus' birth from a virgin. Micah pinpoints the place of his birth in Bethlehem. Judah, sorry, Genesis and Jeremiah specify his ancestry, that he's a descendant of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. The Psalms foretold his betrayal and the accusation by false witnesses and the manner of his death, that he'd be pierced in his hands and feet. Remember that crucifixion wasn't invented then wasn't devised when the Psalms were written and spoke of resurrection back to life. That's quite astonishing, isn't it? The second candle of Advent reminds us in a culture that says, what is truth? Here's truth. Here's incorruptible, blindingly obvious, publicly available, open to all with a, with a willing heart to consider. Now, if there's any mathematicians here, and probably Mark is one of them, I might have got a little bit of this wrong, because these are big numbers. If you like statistics, I didn't work these out. Statistics aren't my forte. Um, Someone calculated this. What's the likelihood of just eight of these prophecies being true and being fulfilled in one person? Just eight. I mean, there's 48, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what do you think is the probability that eight of these prophecies about Jesus, foretold, declared, announced, written, established, hundreds of years before they happened, what's the probability of them being by chance? It's one in 100 million billion. And this is where I might have got the noughts wrong. (laughs) That's too much. It's like kind of listening to about G7 summits, and you go, I have no idea what that number looks like apart from that. What does that mean in reality? Well, someone very cleverly, they don't use the size of whales, which is always the archetypical um, kind of standard for comparison. This time, it's France. Someone said it's like taking all of France, 
and covering it with 50 pence pieces. That would be quite impressive. No euros. 50 pence pieces. And that many 50 pence pieces would mean that all over France, there were two feet deep, 50 peas. That's a lot of 50 peas. And that's demonstrating how big a number that would be. If you've ever been to France, it's quite a large country. And if you just marked one of those 50 pence pieces that are covered two feet deep over the entire uh, geographical area of France, if you marked one of those with the special mark, this is the special coin. And then you took someone, a random person, blindfolded them, and then set them off to walk randomly over France and said, at any point, reach down and pick a coin. That is the chance that they'll get the right one. A lot of people are going, I'm presuming that's incredible. I'm like, oh, I can't believe that. Not that stupid statistic, Edward. <laughs> Isn't that astonishing? Anyway, someone who likes probabilities far more than I do, mathematician Peter Stoner, tried to calculate the odds of all 48 major prophecies being true. I mean, if that's eight, what's the number going to be? Well, I've written it down for you. It's one in a trillion, 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 trillion chance. And I just kind of wrote down what a trillion is. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me, apart from 50 p's over France. And yet, on the second Sunday of Advent, as we read in the carol services and we hear it piped in supermarkets and hotel lobbies and sung on streets and played by Salvation Army bands, the eternal truth of the announcement, the Messiah is coming, the anointed one, the long-awaited one, the anticipated one, the one prophesied, the one foretold, the one who was born in Bethlehem. Now, the critic may say Jesus manipulated and maybe he sort of sought to, to align himself to fit the prophecies, you know, and some of them perhaps. I mean, I don't believe, believe that, but you could see how some of them you could manage. But with any kind of careful thought and, and even just cursory thinking, most of them would be impossible to manage. How could Jesus control the fact that the Sanhedrin offered Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray him? That was announced. How could Jesus arrange for his ancestry to be right? I mean, he was powerless, like any conceived baby, powerless to influence that, let alone the place of your birth. I mean, it wasn't even Nazareth where his parents lived. They had to shift. Travel to Bethlehem, for that had been spoken. Or even the mode of his execution. I mean, he was arrested and interviewed and tortured, and the choice of execution was handed to him. Not like he did. I'll take multiple choice, I'll choose my own way. And he couldn't influence the soldiers who gambled for his clothing. And he wouldn't have been able to say, now, you know, stab me, don't kind of, uh, don't break my legs. Yet, 
The Psalms, we're told, with his legs remained unbroken on the cross. How could you arrange all that? You can't. You can't. In the second Sunday of Advent, we remember the Old Testament. We remember the wonderful provision of God who has said right through the breadth of what we call the Pentateuch, this Torah, the first five, the law, through the prophets, through the writings, and the wisdom literature, announced again and again in different places, in different circumstances, in different centuries. Behold, I will do a new thing. When the Assyrians were menacing in the 8th century before Christ, 800 years through Isaiah and Micah, from the line of David, a son would be born of a virgin. His name would mean God with us. And he would eat poor man's food and curdled milk and honey. And yet, like the passage of time, we see the rise and fall of many empires and strong men and and the change of civilizations. Later on, it, it wasn't Assyria anymore, but moved on to the Babylonians. And again in Isaiah later on, but in other prophets, Micah, that the great light will shine, the Son of the, the, Son of the Lord will send. The branch, the king, will be righteous and discerning, will be both judge on behalf of the meek and oppose the wicked. The son of Jesse will be a world ruler. He'll usher in the new age, the kingdom of God. He will return to a time blessing similar, of similar blessing to that of the Garden of Eden. To Jeremiah in the 6th century of Ezekiel in exile speaks and heralds a new hope, a new day when the descendant of David will rule justly and establish God's kingdom. Even in exile, even when all the trappings of faith, everything that they had turned to as a sign that God was with them, Ezekiel, the prophet in exile, says, even the valley of dry bones will live. There'll be a river of life from the temple. It will be the healing of the nations, that the new king will be a shepherd king, and there will be a new covenant. The old seems to have failed and been torn into tatters. But a new shepherd king will come. And the Babylonians give way to the Persians, and Zechariah pipes up and says... There's more to this messianic hope. There's more to the coming one, the promised one, an enlarged vision. Yes, the branch of Jesse, the tribe, and the line of David. He will be a king of kings. But Zechariah says he will also be a priest who will build a new temple. And that the Lord will dwell in Jerusalem, and that place will be a place of goodness and peace. The nations will stream to Jerusalem to find salvation there. Remarkably, in Jerusalem, they will pierce him and mourn his death. The one they pierce will be God's shepherd, king. Wow. Wow. On the second Sunday of Advent, and it may seem a bit teachy, 
may seem a bit like a lecture. But we're getting to grips with why this Sunday is marked year by year in those churches that we kind of opt into in the church Christian calendar to say this is worth remembering, this is worth reiterating, this is worth getting the highlighter pen out and saying we can be sure of Jesus because it's lived in the present but it's also rooted so strongly and firmly in historical fact. In the scriptures, plain to see, I won't go through all of them, you know many of them, but it's all there. It is all there. See, when we sing the carols and when we sip on a bit of mulled wine, if that's your thing, and when we open the presents and celebrate on Christmas Day, we remember the king has come. Not just any old king, but one, if there were emails and texts and Twitter, they would have been sent. And like Donald Trump's in the middle of the night, these are true. That God put them into the public domain and said, I will do it. I will do it and it will be like this. And lo, it came to pass. Let's pray together.